Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you, good to be with you on this Lord's Day, on this Sunday morning. It's good to see some uh, guests and and visitors today and some old friends as well. Uh, Got a chance to talk with a few of you. I heard something really surprising on Saturday here. I was here just about all alone, and I heard this noise coming from the roof, rain, Rain. It like rained hard for a few minutes here uh, Saturday. You remember that? So we like say thank you or thank God or something like, I don't know, clap. I was just like, what is that noise? I, f- I forgot what it sounded like to hear the loud rain coming down onto the roof on Saturday. So a lot to give thanks for. Uh, this is in our text today. We are now near the end of the book of First Thessalonians. In fact, this is the last unit in this book that we're going to look at today. In light of the fact that uh, some of you, like me, are uh, forgetful, others of you are visiting, I want to give you a little background of of what has been going on in the community of the church in Thessalonica back in the first century, what we have heard, some of the issues. Now, the church in Thessalonica was mostly a healthy church, but even healthy churches have stuff going on. There's difficulties, there's challenges. And so a couple of things that they had going on, especially for those of you that are visiting, is they were grieving. They were a grieving church. There were people who died, and they're mourning, and they're grieving, and then compounded with that grief as they were confused about the end times. And so that's one of the things that was going on. One of the conditions on the ground is that the church was grieving. Another thing that they had going on In the church in Thessalonica in the first century is some of the people were not working. Again, it was related to this misunderstanding about the end times, but there seems to be a group within the church that were so focused on Jesus coming back and believing that he was coming back any moment that they basically quit working and were getting up in everybody else's business. And they, uh, they were couch surfing, as it were. They were grazing in kitchen cupboards, which were not their own. And they were idle. And so these are difficult situations. And there's more than that. We're going to see more than that that was going on as we come near the end of the book. Uh, my point is that this is a church that had its share of challenges, trials, and grief. Even though it was mostly a healthy church, they had a lot of stuff going on. One commentator writes this. He says, from a human perspective, they had every reason not to be joyful. Persecution from outsiders, I didn't even mention that, but they're living in this pagan Roman Empire context, and they were being persecuted by outsiders, and then they had these other issues going on within them. And so all of these things going on from a human perspective, they had every reason not to be joyful. They had every reason not to be thankful. So how is Paul going to close out his letter? Well, if I were writing the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, and thankfully I'm not and I wasn't. Can you say amen to that? I mean, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. But if I were writing it, I I would probably like say something like, just hang in there. Things are going to be okay. It's not going to stay this way forever. Things are going to get better. I know it's been hard. 
I mean, that's what would be in here if, if I or maybe you were writing the end of this book in light of the grief that they were going through, in light of the persecution that's coming from outside the church to them, in light of the people that some of them aren't working and they're basically parasiting off of others in the church. But that's not what we find. That's not how Paul concludes. The thing that stands out to me most strongly in what's at the heart of today's sermon are verses 16 through 18. There are these, it's this beautiful poetic statement, really. It's a, just a very few words in the original. Paul doesn't end by saying, just hang in there, everything's going to be okay. He says, rather, be joyful always, always rejoice, give thanks in all circumstances. How can he say that with what's going on? When a church is grieving, it's lost loved ones, it's being mocked by the secular culture outside of itself, and Paul says to rejoice, and Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances, that, that just doesn't, does that fit? That's kind of the question I want to raise here at the beginning. Now, I expect I expect the middle thing there in verse 17. If you're looking with me, I'm at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. The heart of this unit of scripture that we're looking at today. I expect him to say, pray continually. Yes, we need God's grace. We need, we need his help. But a commandment to be joyful? These are commands. A commandment to give thanks? So I'm raising the question here, is joy compatible with grief? Is joy compatible with, with challenges and trials and difficulties in those seasons of life where, where you just, I just want to move beyond this season? Anybody ever been in a situation like that? Let me see your hands. Like, I just want to get through this season and I need some encouragement just to get through. I want to get over here but Paul says, always rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances. How do these things go together? Can they go together? I think you get the answer here before I'm giving you the answer. But what I want to do now before we go through the, the core of, of verses 16 through 18 is I, I want to back up and go through most of this passage beginning uh, with verses 12 and 13. So hopefully you have your Bibles open. And let's take a look at 12 through 13. We're going to hit most of the verses, and then we'll come back, and I'm going to hit joy especially, but this core of 16 through 18, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. So let, let's look at verses 12 and 13 just to get started. It says, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So in 12 and 13 here, what he's alluding to is that there are leaders in the church at Thessalonica. Now, he doesn't name them by name. He doesn't identify them as elders, but likely these are the elders. And, and Paul's instructing the, the brothers, that is the church at large, the, large, the Christians, brothers, sisters, men, women, boys and girls, those who for, are following Jesus, respect those who are working hard among you. 
those who are admonishing you. There's a lot of stuff going on inside the church, a lot of problems and a lot of difficulties. And, and sometimes leaders are called to be, I, I use this phrase a lot, lovingly intrusive, uh, to come into someone's life and, and speak truth into their life to help them move in a different direction. And so Paul in verses 12 and 13 is basically saying, yeah, yeah be careful, love these guys, uh, respect them. Uh, respect them. They're working hard, these leaders. Now, he doesn't identify any of them by name, but if we go back to Acts chapter 20, we know in Paul's missionary journey, he was accompanied by Aristarchus and Secundus uh, from Thessalonica. Uh, those, those, are, those are good child names. I know we've got at least one pregnancy in here. Um, Aristarchus, Segundus. I mean, these are biblical names. So the, they're from Thessalonica. So we don't know for sure that they were elders. We're not totally sure those are two of the individuals he's talking about. But whoever they are, in verses 12 and 13, Paul is basically encouraging the church at the end here to respect those who are, who are over you and who are being lovingly intrusive, who are trying to help you, even though it might not feel like they're trying to help you. Respect the leaders. Um, John Stott writes this. He says, the chief characteristic of Christian leaders, Jesus insisted, is humility, not authority, and gentleness, not power. Nevertheless, authentic servant leadership still carries an element of authority. In other words, leaders have a responsibility when you're not working and you're parasiting off of other people in the church to show up at your house and say, yeah, I know you're not working because you think Jesus is coming back soon, but it's actually time for you to start working and to get out in the orchard and to get out in the fields. And that's the kind of thing that was going on. And so Paul is writing and encouraging them to respect the leaders who are doing that lovingly intrusive work. All right, let's look at verses 14 and 15 now. And now here's where we get the summary of all of the challenges that are going on within the life of the church of Thessalonica in the first century. We, we get this summary in verses 14 and 15. Look at it with me. He writes, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. And I've got these three words circled in my Bible, idle and then timid, and then weak, or whatever your translation has as the equivalent. Your translation may have the faint-hearted. So in, now he's shifting. So he spoke to the whole church, hey, respect your leaders. But now he's saying, hey, we urge you, brothers, sisters, all of you, to warn those. In other words, it's not just the leader's responsibility, but it's everyone's responsibility to watch those and to encourage those and to be lovingly intrusive to those who are struggling in these three particular areas. And the first one is this area of idleness. So that's one of the three problems that has been going on in the church at Thessalonica. And if we go back to chapter 4 and look at verses 11 and 12, we see Paul address this issue of idleness there where he said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, not getting up into everyone else's business, mind your own, and to work with your hands. We're talking about a first century agricultural society. So, so nobody worked at, at Google. Nobody worked at Amazon. Uh, they they not, almost everybody worked with their hands out in the fields. So work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders 
and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. This is one of the problems that was going on in the church. The, the couch surfing, the cupboard raiding people within the church. That's the first problem. The second problem I circled in my Bible is uh, the timid or the faint-hearted. And Paul addressed this in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, about those who died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. He's talking here about loved ones who died. And a lot of the people in the church in Thessalonica are freaking out. They're grieving, just which is a normal, healthy thing to do, but they are grieving without hope. And they're freaking out because they have these false understandings about the end times. And so, so Paul is, is reminding, uh, reminding us here of the problems that were going on. And what he's saying in verse 14 is this isn't just the leader's responsibility, but we urge all of you to warn those who are idle and to encourage those who are timid, those who are faint-hearted, those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Encourage them. Minister to them. Uh, weep with them, grieve with them. If they need understanding that about the end times, then talk with them about that if that's what is upsetting them so much. And then the third thing that I have circled and the third thing that was going on in the church is that they were weak. And this is in the area of lust or sexual immorality. And Paul speaks about this back in chapter 4 and verses 3 through 5. He writes this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. This was a, a, a wild and crazy partying city. Uh, think think uh, Las Vegas, but, but beyond that, th this is a place where, where men would have several homes and several women in places of refuge. And some of this came into the church as some of them came to know the Lord. And so this is a battle that is going on. And so Paul is telling not just the leaders, but the whole church to help, help those who are struggling in this area of, of immorality, in this area of, of weakness. So that's verses 14 and 15. He's summarizing what's going on. Make sure, verse 15, nobody that pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. That's the spirit of humility in which this gets taken care of. Now, verses 16 through 18 are the core. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's jump down to verse 19. Verse 19, uh, the, the NIV that I have says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Better translation here, most of your translations say, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And I think what Paul's doing here, beginning in verse 19, is he's just like rapid fire, just getting everything out at the end. He knows he's about done with this letter. And so some of us have the temptation, and, and those of you that, that aren't listening need to wake up and listen right here. Some of us are like this. If you're a highly intellectual person, you're a person who is super, super into the scriptures, you may be the kind of person who quenches the Holy Spirit. If someone is impressed by God and led by God to say something to you, especially if that something is something lovingly intrusive, do you have a tendency to just say, oh, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't want to hear that? This is what he's saying in verse 19 at the end of his letter, just rapid fire getting these things out. 
Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Prophecies are not just these fancy statements that have to do with the end times or predicting the future. Prophecies are when the Holy Spirit prompts someone to say something that needs to be discerned and tested, but is from God to encourage the body. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Look at verse 21. Test everything. We test when someone says something to you. God put this on my heart to tell you X. Test it by the scriptures. Verse 21. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So you get the sense here as a, as a preacher, Paul's just like, just rapid fire, just getting the ammo out in verses 19 through 22. Well, with that, I want to come back and spend the rest of our time uh, just on verses 16 through 18, which is just the, the core, I think, of this unit. And then next week, we're going to have some testimonies about the book of First Thessalonians and a very, very short sermon next week. So I'm looking forward to next week. I look forward to short sermons. Do you look? I, I, I look maybe I look forward to them more than you do, hopefully. Um, but I'm looking forward to a short sermon next week and hearing testimonies from several of you. But now I want to come back to what I said at the beginning of the sermon, why I'm surprised as a reader. He's just summarized the, the struggles within the church up in 14, the idle, the timid, and the weak, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And then we get this command, be joyful always, or always rejoice. And this is a command. It's in the imperative mood. So we could put exclamation points after each of these verses, verse 16, 17, and 18. And as I said, maybe, maybe some of you were here the very first week we began this book, This is the passage I would recommend if God hasn't led you to memorize any other passage in this book. I would encourage you to memorize verses 16, 17, and 18. But I want to get over what I think is really just kind of shocking that he's commanding these people with all of these struggles to be joyful always. To be joyful always. And I want to resolve this issue of can we have joy? Can we have well-being in us and joy when we are grieving, when we are struggling, when we're in a season of life where we just want to move beyond and see this in the rearview mirror. Can we have joy in the midst of that? And how is Paul commanding us to have it? So I think you know the answer I'm going to give, but, but the answer that I give should only be right if it's seen in the scriptures. Scripture interprets scripture. So let's take a look for some help here back in Acts chapter 5. And I'm looking for help in dealing with what is, I'm raising this question of the compatibility of grief, of sorrow, of trouble, of hardship with joy. Can these things go together? So if we look at Acts chapter 5, it's on the screen. It says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. I paused this here. I didn't put the rest of the passage here just because I want us to pause for a moment on this word flogged. This is before the Sanhedrin. The apostles are called in and they are tortured. These are not enhanced interrogation techniques. These are specifically designed procedure of torture 
to not kill you, but to make sure that you never, ever do whatever we're saying you did to bring you to this place. So we're talking about the, the 39 lashes. We're talking about as much physical torture as they can bring to someone and they can continue to live. The apostles, they're called in and they're flogged. Then look what happens. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, (laughs) rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. There's no smiling. There's no happiness here. There's no season of life that they're excited about. They have just been tortured and they are rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So I think if we're trying to answer the question, can you and I have joy in the midst of grief, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of physical torture? What's the answer, church? The answer is yes. And so part of what I'm trying to say today, like maybe you're sitting there going, what, okay, what is all this about? What this sermon is about in large part is to say that joy is something much greater, something much more supernatural than you and I think that it is. We don't put joy and torture together in our minds. But God, in Acts 5.40, puts joy and flogging and torture together in the hearts of the apostles. Now, I don't ever want to be flogged. We should not want to be flogged. We do not want to suffer. We are not masochists. But this is incredible news. That through God, you can go through physical, emotional torture, and somehow rejoice, that both of these can go together. F.F. Bruce writes this. He says, early Christians had inner resources which enabled them to rejoice, not merely in spite of those afflictions, but because of them. Like the Jerusalem apostles, who after judicial flogging, what we just looked at, left the council chamber rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So now, if you're a critic and a skeptic, like I am often critical and skeptical of things, so they say, okay, well, they were suffering for the name. They were suffering for the advancement of the gospel. And in America, in 2020, we don't tend to suffer like that. We don't tend to be tortured for advancing the gospel or proclaiming the name of Jesus. In 20-some years of ministry, I have never had anyone in my office who has been flogged for sharing the gospel. So the critic might say, well, yeah, that's what God does if you do that. But we deal with other kinds of trials and difficulties. And is joy really compatible with those? So some of you know where I'm going to go. Where am I going to go right now? Some of you know. At least say James 1. Okay, James 1. That's where I'm going to go. Here we go. James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds, not just related to gospel advancement, not just because you were flogged for sharing the gospel, but whether it's cancer or a difficult family relationship, whether it's grieving, whatever it is, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'm trying to make the argument that the New Testament presents joy as something much bigger than we think it is generally in our minds, and that it is compatible with trials, with sufferings, with grief, whether those are related to gospel advancement or whether they're just like, Lord, where did this come from? I I don't know about you, but for me, most of the struggles I have in life and the trials that I have are not directly connected to gospel advancement, although I'm trying to do that by God's grace, they're just like, where did this come from? They're trials of many kinds, as James puts it. And so I'm not trying to discourage us today about all of the trials and difficulties in life. In fact, I'm trying to give us encouragement and hope to say that joy is compatible within them. And that joy is something beautiful that God gives to believers and it is compatible with these, with, um, with our struggles and with our trials and with what is going on in the church in Thessalonica and what may be going on in your life and my life. So I've entitled this message uh, out of verse 16, really the paradox of biblical joy. Because I think in general, I haven't said it explicitly yet because I think it's intuitive. We associate joy with, you know, the, those, the graduation ceremonies, with, with the birth of first child, with, with the, the, the raise at work, with the health and wealth and things are going really well. And, and we should associate joy with that. It's not only that, however. In fact, joy is brought into the hearts of believers in the midst of of trials and challenges. And so this commandment to be joyful always is really, really important and is the opposite of what a fleshly mind like mine would think of that someone needs at the end of this. Be joyful always. There is a paradox to biblical joy, and that is that it's not only available when things are going well, but the joy of the Lord is our strength, especially in trials and tribulations and struggles. So, Three points this morning, and we'll get to the other two very quickly. The first one is that there is never a moment when his joy can't be yours. That is my summary of this commandment, this imperative to always rejoice. It's just two words in the original. Always rejoice. And it's plural. It's to the whole church. It's to all believers. It's to everyone at Cornerstone here today. It's to everyone in Thessalonica in the first century. It's to everyone throughout the ages of church history. Be joyful always. There is never a moment when his joy can't be yours. It can be yours. And this is good news. Do you believe that, church? Say amen if you believe that. So I want to... Um, to uh, give you one other picture of this paradox and then a little bit of a definition, okay, of joy. So uh, when I talk about paradox, we're talking about things that don't seem to go together, but that actually do. Joy and suffering, joy and trials. Sorrowful 
yet always rejoicing. There's a paradox right there. And then we have these other paradoxes in this long list in 2 Corinthians 6. Poor, yet making many rich. Meaning many Christians are poor materially, but they can make someone rich because they come to know God and have treasure in their hearts and joy in their hearts. That is a paradox. That someone who's poor can help make someone be rich because they inherit the infinitude of God and all that he is and all that he's made. We can have nothing, but we can possess everything because we have contentment and joy in the Lord. So again, this is the theme of paradox, uh, that, that joy and struggle, joy and trial go together. So C.S. Lewis tries to describe, and what I'm trying to do right now is help us to broaden and understand the the greatness and the beauty and the supernaturalness of joy. C.S. Lewis tries to define joy, but he doesn't really define it. He just kind of describes it. And this this is pretty heady, but take a look at what he says. He, He says, it, he's talking about joy, it is an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction, I call it joy. So the closest thing that we're going to get to a definition of joy from C.S. Lewis is that it's more desirable than any other satisfaction. That's what joy is. And that's what you can have, Thessalonians. That's what we can have, uh, folks at Cornerstone today, even when life is difficult. C.S. Lewis goes on. He says, I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy must be distinguished from happiness and pleasure. Is that biblical? Is that true? Isn't joy the same thing as happiness? Well, I don't think they were happy in Acts chapter 6 when they were being flogged. But I do think they were joyful. So there is something transcendent and mysterious and beautiful about the joy that can be in the presence of a believer's life, even when things are difficult. So he distinguishes it from happiness and pleasure. He goes on, joy in my sense has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. We will want it again. I'm okay, Lord. Life is difficult. This is really hard, but I'm okay. That is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. He goes on in this definition that's not a definition. He writes, apart from that and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. He's basically here, I think, trying to say in a way that's very difficult to grasp that, that joy is, can be alongside unhappiness and grief. And then finally, he says, I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power and pleasure often is. What he's saying here is that the person who knows Christ and in the midst of the storm can experience joy and peace and well-being. Is that the Lord coming? Um, did I say something wrong? Um, <clears throat> it is a pleasure. It is beyond any kind of pleasure that you can seek out. To, to, to be in the center of his will, even though things are difficult and hard, and to know it's okay and know that I'm fine. That's why he, in verse 16, this unexpected, be joyful always, this commandment comes. So my simple definition, C.S. Lewis doesn't give us a simple one. So I, I, this is my 
best attempt at a simple definition of joy. It's a God-given state of well-being during happiness or hardship for those in Christ. That's what it is. And it is beyond a pleasure, a sensation. It's beyond anything that any alcohol or drug can make you feel or any other kind of sensual pleasure. It is knowing I am his and I am okay and I am more than okay, I am good. C.S. Lewis tasted this, the sweetness of being in relationship with Jesus and the byproduct, the fruit of the spirit of joy. It is a God-given state of well-being during happiness that we get. It's also there during hardship for those who are in Christ. All right. So that's verse 15. That's verse 16, rather. Be joyful always. It's just two words. Always rejoice. Now, in verse 17, it's also just two words in the original. Uh, Continually pray. Continually pray. Now, that's something I would have anticipated. Uh, God calls us to be praying constantly. And here's what that means. To pray without ceasing does not mean that every other activity must be dropped for the sake of prayer. That doesn't mean don't go to school tomorrow, students, and just pray all day. Don't go to work tomorrow and just pray all day. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that every other activity must be dropped for the sake of prayer, but that every activity must be carried on in the spirit of prayer, which is the spontaneous outcome of a sense of God's presence. So it's we go to work, we go to school, we go about our day in God's presence, ready to pray at any moment. We are living in the presence of God, ready to talk to him at any time. So this is what Paul is commanding the Thessalonians at the very end, to rejoice and to pray, to talk to him again and again as often as needed. Be ready to commune and to be in his presence at any moment. Talk to him again and again. And then finally, we come to the last part of this core, uh, this core unit, verses 16 through 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. Give thanks. Again, for me, this is unexpected and seems at first read almost offensive in light of the fact that people in the church are grieving and Paul is commanding them to give thanks. But as we look at other scriptures, we understand what he's getting at and he's not being offensive. He's actually being really encouraging. One commentator writes this, no combination of happenings can be termed bad for a Christian because of God's constant superintendence. Romans 8:28. We need to recognize that seeming aggravations are but a temporary part of a larger plan for our spiritual well-being. Out of this perspective, we can always discern a cause for thanks. We thank God for we thank we thank God let me get this right. Um, give thanks in all circumstances, rather, not for all circumstances. Notice that preposition is really important. We don't thank God for our sin or for evil, but we give thanks even when we sin or when something evil occurs, knowing that God will forgive us, that God wants to redeem that situation, and that he is sovereign in a mysterious way over all things and wants to work this for good. So this is incredibly hopeful. This is not offensive to give thanks 
in all circumstances, but not for all circumstances. So we're giving him thanks, especially when it's counterintuitive. That is when life is hard, when life is difficult, we need to give him thanks, not for those things, but for what he's going to do in growing us, in shaping us, in changing us in light of those things. That's what I have for us today. Let's bow our heads together and pray and ask God to help us to respond to these, at first read, seemingly offensive commands. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, it seems odd at first read to command people to be joyful, to rejoice. But when we understand that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and we understand that joy is something that you can bring into our lives even when life is so difficult, Lord, it's then that we recognize how great and how awesome and how beautiful you are and how much we need you. So I pray, especially for those who are struggling now, that you would help them to rejoice, not necessarily to smile, not necessarily to look happy, but to rejoice in the joy of the Lord, who is our strength. We pray in his name. Amen.